turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We're going to begin and read the last few verses of Ecclesiastes 11. And today we're going to look at the, the end of this book and we're going to look at three things. First of all, the um, preacher's final assessment on his book, his philosophy that he's given throughout this book. We're going to look at the power of his words again, and then we're going to finally look at the purpose that he sends us out into life with. And so that's what we're looking at in Ecclesiastes. We're going to start in chapter 11, and um, let me begin in verse 9. It says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain and in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because there are few. Those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors in the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of the song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails. Because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken in the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Welcome to church, good morning. Right? I think we've said that over and over again in this book of Ecclesiastes. And first, the preacher gives us his final assessment on this book. And it fits in with the entire book because it's enigmatic from chapter 11 at the end through the beginning of chapter 12. We get both senses that we've got throughout this entire book. One, we get the carpe diem passages, the seize the day passages where he says to the youth, hey, rejoice in your youth. You're young. Live it up. Enjoy yourself. As he said throughout the entire book, eat your meal, do your work, live it to the glory of God in one sense. And then he goes into this diatribe for the entire first section of the chapter where he's telling us that um, remember that you're going to die though. Okay, so remember your creator in the days of your youth because you're going to die. And I don't know if uh, you caught this at all, but in the entire first section of this chapter in verses 1 to verse 8 are just euphemisms about death. Okay, so we have quite a variety of them. I want to share those with you. And, and so uh, he, sa he says things like when the grinders are few and when they cease because they're few. That means like when your teeth are kind of like grinded down when you're older, right? When you've got dentures and things like that. So this is, he's going to use like a lot of these euphemisms. He's going to say when the golden bowl is broken, when your head, when your skull is, is cracked, when your silver cord is snapped, when your spinal cord is gone. These are what some commentators see in the Hebrew here in this language. Or when the wheel is broken and the dust returns to the earth. All these are euphemisms for life ending 
And what he's saying is that, look, the, the, as I make my final assessment, I want you to do one thing really, really well. I want you to remember your creator. And we're going to talk about that as we go on today. I want you to remember that he is the one that we have a relationship with. He is the one that we live our lives to. And you need to do that in order to reverse engineer your life in such a way that it means something in the midst of all this chaos and meaninglessness or this vanity and this grasping at the wind. I want you to do that. Because the fact is, you are going to get old and die. And, and, and I, I kind of find this section kind of hilarious, you know, all the kind of euphemisms that, and I, I think it helps us as we start today because it's a serious passage on one level, but a, a little levity always helps to, uh, uh, like Mary Poppins says, a little bit of sugar makes the medicine go down, right? And so I think this is the reality in this per first part. We view this kind of funny picture of us getting old, and if you're older and getting older like I am, then you start to laugh at yourself a little bit and realize this is happening. It's real. And I, I want to illustrate that because I did get the chance to preach this very passage like 12 years ago. Um, actually, let, let's put up first this picture of an almond tree, right? This is a beautiful picture. So it, 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 there's some beauty in this passage at the beginning. Like that's a beautiful almond tree, right? It blossoms white. And, and he's talking about then when your hair gets gray. And so this is where I want to share with you some self-deprecating humor. If you put this picture up, then you'll see that 12 years ago when I preached this passage, I had no gray hair, Okay. So, um, yeah, and, and Tucker kind of encourages me. When I moved back from the UK, I was like, I'm going to color my hair so nobody here knows. But then I decided my wife wouldn't let me. So here it is. It's all gray, almond tree in full blossom. I love it. Okay. Anyway, so all I say to that is, especially to young people in particular, um, you can laugh at me all you want, but it's going to happen to you too. Okay. And you can make fun of older people who, it says here, the, when, when uh, the, the strong men are bent or when the keepers of the house tremble. That's like when your legs walk. And I realized this past week, I'm like, man, I'm kind of like uh, unable to walk without like shaking right now. This is kind of embarrassing. I'm starting to feel this faintness and this fatigue in my existence that I didn't have before. But instead of looking at that like our culture does, making youth king, which youth are wonderful, rejoice, oh young man. But at the same time, instead of looking at it that way, look at it and say, that's where I'm headed. And that's why I need to listen to the assessment of the preacher and what he is saying in this passage. If I had one thing to pass on, I would pass on exactly what Solomon says in his assessment, and that is, you don't get to live your life back. I was talking to my wife last night and I said, there are so many ways in which, you know, and, and I didn't mean to sound kind of depressed or morbid or anything like that. There are so many ways in which I can look back at my life and I can say on one level, I think this is like what Ecclesiastes says. On one level, thank you, God, you've been in control the whole time in this chaos that's happened under the sun. And on another level, I would say this, I don't have regrets, but I'd say, I wish I could do it all again. Not because I think I would crack the nut and get it perfect, but because I've learned so much. And the preacher wants us to learn through his vicarious wisdom. Like, listen, young people, I have lived everything you could ever imagine and experience. And what you're experiencing is valid and true and real. But just know, unless you remember your creator, unless you put your relationship with God and God's people and his perspective on this world as the central piece to the reality of your life, you will get back and you'll say, I did not thread the needle like I wanted to. 
Now, some of that will exist for all of us. And even for any age that we're at, I'll say this, that, that there's always an option to continue to reform and change and grow and be transformed and to redeem the times that we're in. And so it's a hopeful message. Even if you are older and you find yourself looking back and saying, I did not put God at the middle of this, but there's hope. And we'll see that as we move on. So that's the first point I wanted to make. This has been such an amazing series in Ecclesiastes, and Tucker has done such a good job of uh, leading us through it. He's led us through this assessment. He's brought us to this point. And through many, many sermons, we've seen what exactly Solomon is talking about here. That the cycles of winter and spring and summer and fall, they're, they're repetitive, that they're over and over again, that, that what we work in is vain and we gain nothing from our restless toil, that, that wisdom itself is vanity because our sorrow and depression increase. Uh, even if we're wise or, or, or we're vain, like it says here, we die. Every pleasure we experience is vanity. And so what Solomon is saying here is the one thing you can do, my final assessment, remember your creator. And isn't it true that in this world today, that's the last thing that people want to do? People think that God is the most irrelevant thing to our lives. More and more, we cast him aside. We don't think that he has anything good to share with us. But the assessment of the preacher is, if you really want to nail this, if you really want to reverse engineer your life, if you really want to see purpose fulfilled in the midst of chaos, remember your creator. The second thing I want to move on to is to remember the purpose of, or excuse me, the power behind the preacher's word. Look at uh, verse 9. It says, besides being wise, and, and, and um, I, I do want to just say, actually, before I read this, it, you're going to notice transition here. The entire book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon or a Solomonic-like preacher who is giving us his wisdom. But at the book ends, at the beginning, and at the end, you're going to see a narrator, and that's what happens in verse 9. So while I uh, wanted Tucker to, as the lead pastor, preach this passage and close out the series, I actually think in our text there's an appropriate transition to hear a different voice. That's what the narrator does in verse 9. He says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails fixed firmly. They are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. My son, beware of adding beyond these, of making many books. There is no end and of much study is weariness to the flesh. And so we see here, we're reminded of the power of the preacher's words. You know, in Ecclesiastes, in some sense, we've encountered all the people that we encounter in our life. We've encountered cynics who think that there's no hope to life. We've encountered hedonists who think like we should just live it up and have pleasure. We've encountered agnostics. We've encountered so many different people who uh, are in this book, in the wisdom literature. And what I love about this is that as the narrator reflects on uh, the words of Solomon throughout this book, he's saying, I really want you to understand that what you've experienced and what you've heard is coming from one shepherd that the preacher is under. I want you to understand that, uh, look at the fruit and the labor of this preacher's life, though imperfect he was. 
Solomon, uh, writing most likely the book of Proverbs, thousands and thousands of beautiful sayings, wisdom for the ancients that people came all over the world to hear everything that he would say and give his judgments on various matters of life. And he says, these words that you've heard are like a goad. And I just want to explain these terms quickly to kind of remind us what this book was intended to do in one sense. They're like a goad. I don't know if you know what a goad is. That's not a common thing in our culture anymore, is it? We don't have goads. Uh, Does anyone know what a goad is? Okay, okay, thank you very much. There's one man who knows what a goad is. Um, A goad is a long stick with a pokey thing at the end of it that uh, they would use for cattle or sheep and other things to kind of push them in the right direction when they got off course or out of kind of the the area that they were supposed to go in. What he's saying here is like the words of this preacher, what's been intended all along, reflect on the power. Reflect on when you're told your life is vain in your work or in your pleasure or in your wisdom. What's that supposed to do to you? It's supposed to give you a little prod and give you a little direction to do exactly what he said, remember the creator in the days of youth. And then he says that these words are also like nails firmly fixed, these collected sayings. Have you ever like walked on a floor where it's like a little bit wonky, as they say, where like you're walking and the nail comes up? And I mean, I've been on somewhere that even like as you walk, it kind of pops up and you think you're going to hit in the face. This is what he's saying. Like uh, that is the wisdom of this world. Every other Philosophy, every other theology, every other ism in this world that you could possibly receive is wonky, is shaky, could move on you. But the wisdom that is in the preacher's words is nailed down, it's secure. I want want us to reflect on that for a minute as we talk this morning because I think sometimes I, we can take this word of God for granted. I think we can take the shaping of a biblical worldview that we've enjoyed in these church gatherings and in our life in this gospel-saturated place. I had the opportunity to travel, and I'll show some pictures in a minute, to Guatemala this past week with Tucker and Pastor Noah as well. And um, one thing that always happens when you go to another culture is you start to see maybe the effects or the reality that uh, are in those cultures from various worldviews, ancient or uh, coexistent uh, in this present time. You see the effects that have taken place. And, and, and really, um, one of the things I just noticed was like the devaluing of people because of the impoverished economic standard and like people making like a dollar an hour to work all day and doing it with a smile on their face because that's a good wage. And I just thought, you know, here's the reality. They're they're doing that and they're enjoying that, but they're devalued in some sense. They're worth more. And we live in a society where we've been given so much. We've been uh, handed so many things as the fruit of a Christian worldview in some senses that has created this world where we have certain types of industry and technology and understandings on on how to do this. All comes from this Judeo-Christian worldview, the words of the preacher, this wisdom literature, and the entire story of the Bible we're inheritors of. It's not to put their culture down, of course. That's just saying that there are worldviews that have consequences, and there are consequences in our own. But I would say that, simply put, 
we don't always take for granted how firm a foundation we have in God's word. That just simply to read a passage, to understand God's word, to put it, have the opportunity to put it into practice is a firm flooring for the rest of our life. Like Jesus said in Matthew 7, if anyone hears these words of mine and does them, I'll liken him to a wise man whose house is built on a rock. The storms come, the rains blow, but that house did not move. But I want to get to, really, I'm just surveying this first part. I want to get really to the main point of the passage today and, and focus on this, which is the purpose behind the preacher's word entirely. Verse 13. I mean, I could talk about uh, some of the students getting ready for college, you know, the, the, the making of many books. There is no end. Much study is weariness to the flesh. Get ready, guys. It's coming. Um, and also, like, I, I just had to write, like, two, three papers myself for a seminary. I'm just like, man, I am so tired of this. I'm done. You know, so I could talk about that. Um, but I think his point in all of that is just saying that you could, learn, you could look and search high and low for a philosophy to understand life, come back to the preacher's words, come back to the foundation of God's word. And here's the point of all of it. Verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So in one sense, this is what he's already been saying. He's kind of said, fear God and live in my example. Remember the creator in the days of your youth. Live and receive, excuse me, and live in the vicarious wisdom given to you, both by my experience, Solomon, and then the narrator saying, by his words, Solomon's words. That's what we've been told. And really that just drives us to the point that the end of the matter has been heard. All has been heard. I wonder if we believe that, that that this philosophy, this theology of the book of Ecclesiastes has really spoken to everything in life. I mean, sometimes I hear uh, people comment a little bit like, well, I don't think the Bible's really spoken on that. And of course, the Bible hasn't spoken on like how to like navigate your iPhone. Um, the Bible hasn't like spoken on things like how exactly to do a real estate deal in the 21st century or something like that in our context. But the Bible has spoken clearly clearly on all matters of faith in life. In Solomon's experience, he has done anything you could imagine to do. Do you want women? He's had them all. Do you want um, money? He's had it all. Do you want wisdom? He's had it all. Do you want uh, houses and mansions and pools? And do you want bands playing every day in your, uh, at your breakfast table? Do you want all of this? He's done it. Do you want business savvy? Do you, what do you want? And he says, I've heard it all. I've done it all. This is the end of the matter. And so he gets to the purpose of his, his words. He gets to the main point. And I think like when we see the last words of Jesus Christ in the gospel of Matthew, and he says, hey, these are my last words to you. I'm ascending. Go into all the world and preach the gospel and teach all nations how to live in my way, essentially, as a paraphrase. Uh, we, we should pay attention to the last words of Jesus. We should pay attention to the last words of this wise philosopher king who existed and say, okay, you've done it all, you've heard it all, what do I do? And he makes it very simple and clear. 
fear God and keep his commandments. Does that sound too simple to you? Does that sound like, okay, we just took this trip on this windy road in the mountains through highs and lows and winds circling through the book of Ecclesiastes. You've made me feel horrible about my life. You've made me say, hey, enjoy the day and enjoy my life. You've done all of this to me, preacher Solomon. And now you're gonna just kind of bring it down to one point. Yes, he is. That's what the narrator is saying. When I look back at all these words that are so powerful, all his experience, everything's been heard. There's one purpose in your life. Fear God. Fear God. The Proverbs say in chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. The Bible goes on to say, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what do we do with this? What does fear of God mean? This is the question. What does it actually mean? I think in past days, like people have thought that to fear God means that he is this capricious, angry person in the sky who is just waiting to destroy us. And I want to tell you that that's not the, the, the word for biblical fear. We know in, in the Bible, in 1 John, it says, we don't fear God that way because that involves torment, but perfect love casts out fear. But what does it actually mean then to fear God in the wisdom literature, in the Bible, and all of this? If this is the main point of life, if this is what he wants you to do, if this is what he says, this is all, after I've heard it, what I want to tell you, what does it mean to fear God? Some people think this is a reverential awe of God, and that's true. I think it's more than that, though. I think it's more than that. I, I, the first sense that I want to share with you guys is um, just the sense that I think the, the Bible says that, that there's a sense in which fearing God means to regard him and to be beckoned by him to himself. If you trace back through the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the things you're going to see over and over again, like in, in chapter 5 when he talks about coming to church or going to worship, he says, just regard God. When you go into sanctuary, think about what you're singing, what you're saying, how you're worshiping. Regard God. Come to him and regard him. Um, when you do your work, think about how you're doing it. Regard God. When you live your life with your family, think about how that's happening. Regard God. Come to him. Make him the center of everything. And I think we do that by seeing who he is and seeing how amazing he is. If we put up this next slide, I, I want to share with you uh, a picture of where we were. And this is Tucker up here, Pastor Tucker. Isn't that a beautiful dive? I mean, what a, what a great form, right? And um, the reason I love this picture is because, to me, that is the fear of God. Look at his majesty, his power, his beauty and creation, and yet Tucker's like diving into it. Um, I want to share with you a, a quote by a man named John Piper. He said this, fearing God means that in your mind and your heart, God is so powerful, so holy, so awesome that you would not dare to run away from him, but only run to him. 
See, rather than God being this person that you have to run away from uh, because his judgment is coming, as we'll talk about in a minute, God is saying the entire time throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, it's chaotic, I'm in control, I'm sovereign over it, come to me and regard me in every area of life to make sense out of this journey. So that's number one, that we're compelled to come to him. We were compelled to regard him, put him at the center of everything. I do think, however, that there is another aspect to this in, in the scripture where there is a real type of fear, and, and we'll put up the, the next picture. Um, this is in Guatemala on one of the cliff sides there that we visited in God's beautiful creation. And um, my wife, I sent this picture to her, and she said, hey, that looks safe. Um, that was her first comment. Because it was a sheer drop there. It was, like, not very safe. And Tucker and Noah hopped right up, of course. I'm like, I'm 40, like I said, my legs are feeling a little bit light. And I'm just like, okay. I crawled up slowly. I'm like, is this safe, you guys? Okay. And, and, and basically, I think this gives us the next sense of the word fear of God, that there is a sense in which we have a dread, an honor, a terror in one sense, just by the mere nature of what we're approaching and who he is. Okay, we're afraid of a lot of things. I think the last time I was up here, I shared with you guys my fear of bees, okay? And I, I described that a little bit. I freak out, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, and like a couple of years ago, it got worse. Do you guys remember during the midst of the coronavirus? I mean, there was a lot to fear or not fear, depending on your perspective. But uh, one of the things that, that I heard in the news at the time was that there's these dreaded like hornet bees, like the, the J- J- murder hornets. Yes, thank you, Tom. The Japanese murder hornets that were on their way to Idaho from Oregon. Thank you so much, Oregon. We appreciate that. But, I mean, I looked at those, and I I wasn't able to upload the pictures this morning, but, like, honestly, like, those things were, like, that big, you know, and I was just like, dude, if I see one of those, I am running, hightailing it as far away as possible. Please, Lord, don't let those bees and murder hornets come to Boise, Idaho. I'm scared. And... (laughs) I mean, I've done a survey at times of like asking people like what they're afraid of and you get some really interesting answers, things like spiders. Some people are afraid of getting old. Like I, I, when I asked one time, people said, I'm afraid of empty spaces. And then another person said, I'm afraid of crowded spaces. I'm like, well, okay. I mean, you guys should get together and like tag team, I guess. Um, afraid of heights and afraid of being embarrassed, afraid of small spaces. There's another space again. I, I don't know what the space thing is, but afraid of choking, afraid of missing out, fear, FOMO, afraid of flying, afraid of being lost, afraid of snakes, afraid of rejection and being alone, afraid of airplane crashes. I mean, there's so many things to be afraid of. <laughs> but all of those things truly do, though there are some scary things there, they truly do pale in comparison to God. They pale in comparison. The God who made those mountains and those volcanoes that blow up with massive power, this is the God with which we have to do the creator that he says to remember. Everything in our culture now teaches us to not regard the creator. We build cities that are enclosed in concrete jungles in such a way we live our lives technologically just captivated to where we're not looking at the creation in order to give the creator glory. Or when we do look at the creation, we worship it. And all Solomon is saying here is the God with which you have to do, the point of all this, the God that you have to fear is this powerful God. 
that we stand on a precipice of eternity at all times and, and God rightfully will bring all things into judgment, but we should fear. I mean, you're afraid of bees. You're afraid of spaces. You're afraid of, like, would you not fear someone like Jesus said who doesn't just kill the body but has the power to kill your very soul? I mean, that is who God is. Now, we've talked about his character being who he is, wonderful, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, but yet he is that God, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, in eternal light and glory, this is the God with which we have to do. I mean, uh, I love, um, as many people, as many Christians and others, Narnia, right? The Chronicles of Narnia. We grew up on them. And one of the, my favorite um, aspects in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is when the children enter into this fantasy world, Narnia. And as the story is narrated. These Pevensey children meet this talking beaver, which is amazing. Um, and he's telling them of this king of Narnia, this, this Aslan. He says this, the beaver, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion, to which one of the girls, Susan, responds, ooh, I, I thought he'd be a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting an island, a lion, Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And see, I think there's that sense, and, and later in that same story is a comment that says, people who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. And many Christians, I would say, have that same sense. that so we don't believe that God can be good and loving and compel us and still be terrible in his judgment, in his power, in his might, and that that can coincide. We think of it like the book of Ecclesiastes. It doesn't make sense, but it does in our creator. So there's that sense which we fear God as well, where we say and come to him like Isaiah did and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost and I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. God is holy. There's a sense in which we need to, to fear him. And, and I would say the Bible's prescription about what causes a lot of the chaos in this world and the enigmatic, um, maddening, uh, 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 just senseless, reality that we live in sometimes is this lack of fear of God. Romans chapter 3 verse 19 says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throats an open tomb. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not they have not known there is no fear of God before their eyes. I mean, I, again, I, I'm, I definitely don't want to be like a fire and brimstone type preacher, to be honest with you, but because I think that that doesn't all bear the fruit that people even want. The wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of God, but I will say this. I do think that for many of us in this generation, we've lost a sense of the fear of God, the reality of who he is, 
and our culture and our world rages against the Lord and his anointed as the nations do, and it's because there's no respect and fear and dread and compelling to come to him. And the, the, the narrator says, this was the preacher's point. This is what you need to hear. Fear God. Fear God. There's um, one other way I just want to mention quickly. I do think that there's an, an element as well of why this is actually so good. Um, why would it be good to fear God? Okay. Well, look at Proverbs 29, 25, and I think it'll help us a little bit. Um, it says this, another wisdom literature, it says, the fear of man lays a snare or a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. Okay. What's he saying there? Well, this is hugely important because it tends to be true in our lives that when people are big, God is small. Uh, Oswald Chambers, here's another quote. He, He said this, it seems that we fear everything and everyone but God. This is sheer insanity. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else, whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. This is the way a believer should live, fearing God and nothing else. See why this is good news? You see why fearing God is good news? Because we are held captive. Like I I joked about bees and I joked about all these smaller things that we're afraid of. Um, But, you know, even a big murder hornet is really just small. Your opinion of me is small. My opinion of you is small. We've lost this reality. Like, we care so much about uh, just how the culture perceives us and, and what we think about one another. It's a snare. It's a trap. And God wants to free us, and, and the narrator is saying, please listen to the preacher's words and this purpose, because if you catch this, you can really reverse engineer your life, especially if you're young, and you can do things. I've seen people make decision after decision after decision after decision in their life because a person told them they should do it, and they couldn't say no. Maybe you've done that, right? And it's had damage in your life. It's had effect in your life. And the preacher says, fear God. Don't fear man. It's another sense here where he goes on. He says, this is the whole duty of man. Um, I, I actually, my understanding of this is that he says, this is whole man. Not duty is an added thing in the text. And, and that he's saying, this is what it means to be Adam in the garden of Eden. This is Adam. This is complete. This is what you can enjoy when you fear God. When a community fears God. And now he mentions judgment, everyone's favorite topic. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. As he finishes and talks about his purpose and and our purpose and the, the real point of this entire book of Ecclesiastes, he says, fear God, keep his commandments, and by the way, he's, we can simplify that too. Jesus said, right, he said, love God and love people. That is 
the commandment. I'm, I'm trying to be really simple today. Uh, you know, we fear God, and then we love God, and we love people. That is commands. First John 1, 5 says, his commandments are not burdensome. You know, what a blessing it is to live in the era of the new covenant where God has said, no longer do you have to worry about keeping 663 or 613, depending on you count them, commandments and laws and Old Testament rituals and rites, but you just can listen. All the law and the prophets hang on this one thing. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Who can argue with that? And that is the point of this passage. And then he says, and God's going to judge it all. So I want you to live your life, as some theologians say, in quorum Deo, in the the, the face of God, in the presence of God, knowing that every moment that you live and exist is going to be brought before a judge. Now, this is also something that's difficult for us to understand because we don't live in a culture that receives this, loves this, or even um, makes this a reality. I wanted to share with you a few pictures of a place in Italy that I love, which is Florence, Italy. If you pop the first one up there, um, it is uh, a place, this is in, in Florence, is a place called the, the Baptistry. Um, and then there's a, a church called the Duomo. And I, I just want to narrate a different story, a different culture for you for a second, because what would happen here in this Baptistry when you were born in the city of Florence back in the day when it was the ruling power of the world is that you would get baptized as a baby in that baptistry. And in that baptistry, you'd see, and your parents would see, and the whole community would see above in this fresco on the top of the roof, if you go to the next picture, um, you'd see a typical um, painting of the time called the Last Judgment. Many of you have seen these around. And and from the, the baptistry, then later in your life, you'd brought, be brought in uh, for your first mass and you would travel from this baptistry and you'd go into the next picture, the church that's there, this, this massive uh, Duomo. And you can see some more pictures of this last judgment. But the next picture is this, this beautiful church in, in Florence, Italy. And as you go into that church and you see the, 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 the dome itself, you're going to see the same picture if you put that up, the, the last judgment is there once again. And, and some of these pictures are um, uh, beautiful and some of them are horrible because you see uh, this middle age or later enlightenment kind of view of judgment that is, um, yeah, just very stark. But I'd say is that that is powerful to think of growing up your entire life under the narrative like, hey, you're going to face this last judgment one day. And our culture just doesn't do that anymore right? And I don't think it was totally out of fear. Maybe it was in some sense, but I'd say that uh, there's a lesson for us to be learned in this. That in this period of history, people knew and believed in the judgment of God, possibly in a wrong way, but at least they knew and believed in this judgment. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, this is a reality. Every secret thing you've done or said will be brought under judgment. One writer said it this way, for many of us, judgment scares, threatens, and spooks us out. But for the preacher, judgment blesses us. For in it, a distinction will be finally made in which lost Eden has refused, in which lost Eden has refused to own. The righteous and the wicked and their ways within their seasons and times will finally hear what was and is true about them. And by this, the preacher doesn't imply that just the righteous are without sin and, and their own need of God. But he does say that everyone will come under judgment and it's a good thing because God will sort out this entire mess. 
Sometimes aren't you wary of just even judging yourself and understanding like what your motives are and other people judging you and then this world judging everything and it's wrong and then there's injustices in all of Ecclesiastes in the highest places to the lowest places injustices and he says, God is going to judge it all one day. That's good news. So I want to look for a minute as we close about the implications of all this. Okay, what are the implications? And I do think... It is that living every moment in the presence of God. I think that when you fear God and you understand he's imminent, he's here, he's right here, and he knows your heart, he knows the secrets, he knows where you have lived in the chaos and submitted to it rather than regarded God. Here's the thing. It changes the way you live your life. This is why Paul would say in Philippians 2, like, hey, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is here and he's working to do and to will his good pleasure in you. So here's the good news. When we crack this nut, when we understand that fear of God is such a beautiful and wonderful and good thing and a powerful thing, then that begins to teach us the lesson in life of every moment being in his face I want to share a couple stories with you from this week that I, I just, I want to rejoice that I see people doing this. Um, there was a, a gal I talked to the other day, um, and honestly, I, I started crying because I thought this was so beautiful and powerful. She is uh, she's going to a line of work, and because of God's providence in her life and, and where he's put her, she has the ability to basically donate almost her entire salary, um, and she's going to get, like, give that to missions, and it's a massive amount of money every month. And I'm just like, the fact that this person would do that, that's a person that fears God. That knows that the account of my finances means more than just what my culture narrates me to spend on myself and enjoy my pleasure. Someone who's regarding God. Um, and I'm not telling anyone here to do that, by the way. I'm not just like, that's not like a motivation to get you to give, but it's an opportunity to look at that person and say, God fear her. God put her in that position. I also, uh, a friend of mine was in an airport this week and um, saw the signs of somebody who was being sex trafficked, trafficked um, because she studied this and, and seen it and actually engaged with security and, and, and spoke into that injustice. That's a God fear. Every moment lived in the face of God, just realizing all around us things are happening and our response is going to be either to God, for God, in his kingdom being built, for his justice, for his goodness, or it's going to be something else. I think about a mom just living her life every day, discipling her kids in the context of a tough environment. And that is someone who fears God, who knows that my investment in my kids is going to bear fruit because the word of God is powerful, as it said in this passage. And I think that this is the sense in which the writer wants us to understand this passage, that I think there's one last picture of the, the last judgment I want to share with you that I saw in Guatemala. We were in this coffee shop, um, and I'll tell you why I like this one. It's a bit distorted, but um, we were in this coffee shop. Wonderful, like, um, 13-year-old girl who's serving her father's coffee business um, made us some amazing Guatemalan coffee, coffee. 
And, uh, but we looked over at the wall and there was this picture and this is the lake we were at. And it, you know, obviously every culture kind of contextualizes the, 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 the last judgment of Christ or Christ's return. But I really like this one because um, if you look and notice, it's like the other ones in the sense of the judgment's happening, Jesus is coming back. But look at the people on the ground. Like they've got like a little uh, guitar out. There's a keyboard ha- action happening. There's some trumpets going on there. And all I'd say is like, they're welcoming back the coming king to his judgment. The good news of the gospel, brothers, sisters, is that through understanding what the preacher has told us this entire time, through fearing God and loving and doing his commandments, we can come to the place where we are actually expectantly waiting the return of Jesus Christ to celebrate his judgment on us because all the wrongs will be made right. Where we've wronged people, it'll be made right. Where people have wronged us, we, where we were confused our entire lives, it will be made right. And then we can say, praise you, God. We're welcoming you back. And I would just encourage you in two things, to live your life in the face of God every single day with the fear of God, with regarding him every minute of your life and see what happens. What would happen if every single person in this gathering, all of us, were living our life every day in our families, in our work, in the way we speak to one another, in the way we uh, honor one another in the face of God? And then we could invite his grace and judgment when he comes. I think it's actually really good news. I think it's hope in the midst of the chaos of Ecclesiastes. I think it's where the writer wants to leave us. And um, I I just want to end this. We're going to take communion now. And all of this in this passage, you'll notice, was couched in the words of like the shepherd, right? The shepherd's words. The good news that we get in the Bible is that the shepherd is our king, the shepherd is our judge, and I'll say this to you, that as we prepare to take communion, David said in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for he is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me, he delivers me from evil, he sets a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so I want to encourage you that the judgment of God went on the shepherd. He laid down his life so that all the ways like Solomon that I have not lived my life in fear of God perfectly, that you have not done that. All the ways in which our secret things will be judged. The shepherd, Jesus Christ, has laid down his life for you if you trust in him, if you believe in him. And, and we're going to remember that communion. as we, We're going to remember that truth of the gospel as we take communion. We're going to prepare our hearts to do that now. And I would just encourage you to do what the preacher says here and say, like, God, I fear you right now. I want to come before you and see where you would convict me, guide me, teach me, and give me a new perspective on how I could reverse engineer the rest of my life, whatever that is, to fear you and keep your commandments of love.